My name is Scarlett Fugazi. Are you a fan of the station? Be sure to tune in on Fridays to Joel Raymond's On the Wing. That's every Friday, 11 to 2 at 89.9 or weru.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Walls Dairy Port. Over 65 years of ice cream artistry. Main Street, Bucksport. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with the help of the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. So on today's show, we're talking about rockweed, that ubiquitous brown seaweed that grows all along the Maine shoreline. We all know it simply as the slippery stuff attached to the rocks in the intertidal zone, but rockweed has long played an important role in Maine's economy and coastal ecology. In recent months, rockweed has been in the news a lot as Maine's Supreme Court ruled that the organism does not belong to the public, but to the landowner adjoining the shoreline where it grows. So in the studio today, we have some scientists, educators, and industry members who can help us understand the value of rockweed ecologically and economically. So I'm excited to dive into this topic and wanted to welcome our guests today. Um, in the studio with us, we have Hannah Middlestadt, who's a graduate student in ecology and environmental science at the University of Maine. Hi, Hannah. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you. Uh, we have Greg Toby, who's the general manager at Source Micronutrients. Hi, Greg. Hi there. Thank you for inviting us. And we also have Bonnie Toby, who is the operations manager at Source Micronutrients. Thank you. Great to be here. And I think you guys are maybe brother-sister, right? Are. Awesome. Great to have you. And then we also have Jacqueline Robidoux, who's a Marine Extension Associate with Maine Sea Grant. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Great. And then later on in the show, around 1020 or so, we're also going to be joined on the phone for a little bit by George Seaver, who's the Vice President of Ocean Organics. Um, so looking forward to hearing from George later on, too. So why don't we start our deep dive into all things rockweed um, by just kind of getting a little bit of everyone's story. How did you get into the world of seaweed? Um, let's start with Jacqueline. 
Awesome. All right. So like Natalie mentioned, uh, my name is Jacqueline Robidoux and I'm a Marine Extension Associate um, at Maine Sea Grant and University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Um, I'm based in Portland and in my role, I work with uh, research, education and industry all around Maine seaweed sector. Um, I got into seaweed as a marine biology student at UNH uh, where I did seaweed biology and research um, and now in my role as an extension associate, I get to engage with a broader community around seaweed, which has been really great. That's great. Did you uh, muck around in the intertidal zone as a kid? <laughs> I did muck around <laughs> in the intertidal zone as a kid. Uh, like many people, I fell in love with the Maine Coast camping here um, and have always been interested in seaweed as that thing that, like you said, we slip on, but there's got to be more to it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's great. How about you, Hannah? <clears throat> You're a grad student at UMaine. Tell us a little bit about your seaweed journey. Yeah, so um, I came into the seaweed world sort of through the invertebrate world, which are, which are, you know, anything from snails to worms and other crustaceans like crabs. Um, and so when I was an undergrad um, out on the West Coast, um, I just really fell in love with that family of animals and just wanted to study them for the rest of my life. And then lo and behold, there's this really cool ecosystem out on the main coast, um, where there's lots of invertebrates living in rockweed beds. So I have been involved with the CRASH team at the University of Maine, which stands for uh, Conserving Rockweed Animal Systems for a Sustainable Harvest. And we're a team of researchers from UMaine, Maine Maritime Academy, and the Skudik Institute. And we are um, in the middle of a study looking at how rockweed harvest um, may or may not be affecting uh, intertidal food webs um, and the whole ecosystem um, in rockweed beds. Great. Yeah. We'll look forward to hearing more about that research. That sounds really interesting. Um, and then our other two guests in the studio, let's start with Bonnie. What's your seaweed journey? Well, I was kind of, well, Greg and I both, I guess, born into seaweed. Um, we grew up on our uh, little private island that's been in our family for 160 years. We're actually literally just this next weekend celebrating 160 years. Wow. And uh, so I played in it and uh, swam in it. And as a kid, it was kind of a nuisance, you know, um, trying to haul the boats in and out and everything. And uh, saw a bunch of skiffs, you know, that would go by as, as a kid and they'd be laden with seaweed. And we never really knew what was happening to the seaweed or where it was going, but it was certainly part of our everyday scenery. And little did we know that um, that seaweed was being harvested for one of the oldest companies in the state, and that's Source. And that's the company that we now work for. So we kind of grew up to uh, work for that very company, and they've been in um, harvesting those same rockweed beds since 1975. So um, it's, it's kind of a, a great full circle. So I've learned an amazing amount. I I had no idea how much I didn't know. <laughs> so, so now I'm learning every day how much I don't know, but learning more. How about you, Greg? Well, I'm going to have to parrot some of what my sister said because the experiences were largely the same. Um, but I've come from a, a background of boat building and um, always interested in anything to do with the ocean. Um, it's just a, a, a beautiful place to, to be on. And growing up and seeing um, so much wildlife and, and, and the seaweeds and, and such, um, about seven years ago, I actually had the opportunity to come on board and work with Source. And uh, it's been a, a pretty cool thing ever since. And, and, and like Bonnie said, you learn every day 
things that you didn't even know you needed to learn. <laughs> so that's pretty much been the journey to this point. And Greg, what is your role with Source? I am the uh, general manager, kind of overseeing day-to-day um, -day operations and uh, how, how our, uh, the, Br the Brunswick um, plant works and uh, making sure everything up there goes smoothly. And can one of you guys give us the, the overview of what Source is? Source is a, um, uh, a company that was well, founded by Susan in 1975, and um, we harvest uh, rockweed. We dehydrate it for nutraceuticals. Um, our sort of beginning was in the equestrian industry, um, and we've gone from equestrian into uh, human and pet supplements, um, basically uh, buying what Bonnie also helps kind of run the show, so Dad. Yeah, Bonnie, you're the operations manager, right? And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, um, we we definitely do wild harvest. Um, that's our primary focus, and uh, like Greg said, we dehydrate it for a bunch of different things. We still have the equestrian market is our main nutritional market. Um, We've, we've branched out into other things. It's amazing the uses, obviously, for seaweed. We'll get into some of those probably a little bit later. Um, but one of my uh, primary jobs, obviously, is all of the record keeping. And uh, anybody that knows Source or knows of Source's reputation knows that the record keeping is literally off the charts. That um, Susan Demisi, who is the founder of Source, has been extremely instrumental in uh, a lot of the regulations, her and, and some of the other um, harvesters and, and harvesting companies that we'll talk about. And um, they have uh, kept uh, immaculate records in terms of, you know, where they've harvested and how much is pulled out of each area. We have the same set of beds that we have rotated for the past 44 years. And out of those same literally three small geographic locations, we've been able to sustain 44 years of meeting all of the needs that we have had. So that alone um, is, is kind of a nice marker on its um, on what it can bear. And if it's done right and, and rotated correctly, that you can go back to those seaweed beds and, and cut, leave the minimum height, leave the seaweed plants, leave the seaweed there. And... Um, and, and still go back three years later and have it grow enough so that we can harvest. And let's talk a little bit about the organism itself that, um, that you guys are harvesting. Um, so uh, I'm going to turn to Jacqueline. Tell us, give us kind of an overview of rockweed. Um, and as we said at the beginning of the show, everybody who spends any time on the coast of Maine thinks of rockweed as just that slippery, frondy kind of stuff that is in the intertidal zone. Um, Tell us about what it is. Yeah, so rockweed um, is a large canopy-forming brown algae that's in the intertidal zone. So it's what, like Natalie mentioned, you're seeing when you're on the beaches. Um, it's pretty ubiquitous, growing all over rocky, hard surfaces. Um, and as far as recognition, most people recognize it for those air bladders that it has. Um, it's there all all year round, so it um, is not going to be disappearing, obviously. And um, so kind of this time of year, just for basic biology, um, rockweed is past its reproductive season. Um, and so what you're seeing right now is it's kind of released its spores. 
Um, and then this life cycle is driven by seasonal changes. So as we get into fall, um, it's going to start, those shortening of days is going to start to promote um, rockweed reproduction receptacles to start forming. And those receptacles are the little gel-containing pods that you pop. Um, might like squish a little bit, uh, really fun to play with. And um, so those are going to start to begin to form and then mature over the winter. And so just uh, from a reproductive standpoint, spring is going to be uh, really the height of the spore release. That's how uh, seaweed reproduces. So it's not a seed system like a plant. It's actually spores um, that can uh, swim on their own, which is kind of an interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> And it's from those spores um, receptacles. We make sure that before we start harvesting each year, people always ask, well, when do you start? Generally start sometime in June, but our indicator is when those spore receptacles have dropped off and we do not harvest. And, and I don't know that every company does that, but we certainly make sure that we do not harvest before those spore receptacles have had a chance to drop off. And on the plant, there's the spore receptacle, and then there's also the air bladder, which are two different parts of the plant, right? And the air bladder is its purpose to keep the top of the plant floating to be able to photosynthesize higher in the water column? Yep. So the air bladders are what allow that to form a canopy. So those are acting essentially like balloons, um, built-in little flotation devices that uh, when the tide comes in and the water returns... Uh, turn the uh, seaweed forest, which is kind of on its side, back to being vertical, um, where all those little invertebrates that Hannah will talk about can live and thrive. Yeah, so Hannah, so rockweed is attached to the substrate by a holdfast. It doesn't have roots. And um, tell us a little bit more about that sort of ecosystem in there. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's definitely been a really interesting ecosystem to learn about. So yeah, like you said, um, rockweed's attached to a holdfast, so it's just stuck right there on the rock. And um, there's all sorts of different little critters that can live both on the um, benthic surface, the, the, the seafloor below. Um, so that's where you'll find barnacles, occasionally some mussels, but not too many of those sometimes. Um, but definitely lots of barnacles. And then there's all these other mobile invertebrates that will be living um, either in the canopy at high tide um, or kind of mixed in at low tide, um, or they'll take refuge under the canopy um, at low tide. So that's where you find different snails, different types of periwinkles, um, lots of isopods, which are um, one of my personal favorites. They're um, just like uh, little potato bugs or pill bugs that you might find. Those are actually um, terrestrial uh, crustaceans. And then they have their cousins that live in the ocean and as well as um, little amphipods too, which um, most people are familiar with the like sand fleas or um, those little critters that will hop around um, as well. So, um, yeah, so those will be there both at high tide and then at low tide, the rockweed kind of acts as a blanket and protects them from drying out. And um, so we have some pretty harsh winters here in Maine. How does, uh, I'm picturing, you know, those huge stacks of ice that accumulate in so many of our bays and ponds. How does that impact the rockweed? Well, if this were television, we could show you some pretty interesting photos. Um, I don't think I'd be able to describe it. But what I will say is that um, uh, we have got a lot of uh, uh, photos showing uh, when ice forms along the shore, it'll form around rockweed. Uh, and when, of course, the storms come and or just a normal high tide, it'll float that up. 
Um, the rockweed is not strong enough to hold back a 7,000-pound iceberg, so it'll tear um, the seaweed right off the rocks. Um, and it looks kind of like an alien kind of kind of hit. You know, it just is this odd sort of like one or two inch tall or not even that. It'll take the hold fast right with it. So uh, ice scourge can be a pretty damaging thing to rockweed during the seasons uh, as well as just general storms. And, and the same bed can get multiple ice scouring over the course of a season, I would imagine. Absolutely. And it uh, once the hold fast is gone, it does take a little while for it to grow back. It will come back. Um, but fortunately, uh, there's a lot of crevices, nooks, and crannies that will still hold hold fast after the ice has taken it away, which they will regenerate pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you, Hannah, to tell us a little bit more about um, the rockweed research um, that you've been involved in, and all of you also, if there's other research that I know you've all been connected to many different research projects related to rockweed. Um, CRASH, I think, is the name of your research project, so you'll have to tell us again what that stands for. Um, yeah, so what's the what's the project, and what are you finding? Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, like you said, there has been a lot of research done on the rockweed ecosystem um, over the past few decades, so it's uh, really um, exciting to be adding to that um, body of research. And, yeah, so CRASH, again, stands for Conserving Rockweed Animal Systems for a Sustainable Harvest. It's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um and so we um, are really right in the middle of a study right now where we are looking at um, how harvesting um, may be impacting the system before and after harvesting. So we uh, last year worked with, um, well, and continue to work with four different harvesting companies. So lovely folks at Source, <laughs> Acadian Sea Plants, Ocean Organics, and North American Kelp. And um, every and they all volunteered to be part of the study and um, helped us identify sites where they could go and harvest, and then adjacent sites that we could use as control sites where they would not harvest. And we went and did all of these surveys at those sites. So we looked at different abiotic factors, so things like light, temperature, and wave action, and the rockweed biomass itself. And then I took samples to look at the invertebrate communities um, in the rockweed. And then another graduate student, Elliot Johnston, um, has been surveying the bird communities um, that are, you know, both using rockweed just to hang out on at low tide and also maybe foraging on the invertebrates in the rockweed beds. So we went out and collected data on um, as many different parts of the ecosystem as we could, so all of that. And then they, those sites, um, a handful or about 20 of them are being harvested right now. And then this fall, we're going back and doing those surveys as well. And um, in the in the end of the research yes. project, what's the ultimate goal of the analysis that you're doing related to the inverts and the birds and sort of the overall role of the rockweed system? Yeah, um, so we are just trying to look at the overall role of the rockweed system, like you said, mm-hmm. in um, in relation to that entire food web and that entire system. And the whole goal of this is to um, provide information that will just uh, – allow for the most sustainable management plan as possible um, while looking at um, those upper parts of the food web, like the birds. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, You mentioned that one of the four companies that um, have stepped forward and volunteered to be involved in the research is Ocean Organics. Um, And uh, we have George Seaver, who is with Ocean Organics, on the phone with us now. Hi, George. Welcome to Coastal Conversations. 
Um, well, thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So, um, George, uh, if you could share a little bit about what Ocean Organics is. Um, Ocean Organics is a, we, we process uh, liquid products from the ascophyllum, from the rockweed. Um, the, the idea is it's effectively, oh, you, you could call it a seaweed tea if you want. You can call it seaweed extract. It basically goes back as long as people have had gardens, where if you put some seaweed, well, I think probably it was invented about a thousand years ago when someone put some seaweed in a barrel with some ashes next to their garden. The the material you get, the liquid that you get, contains all the micronutrients, all the all kinds of benefits. Plus, there's something more to it than anyone has understood even fully yet. In that it facilitates the uptake of other nutrients. So seaweed extracts, the short version, seaweed extracts, in effect, increase the efficiency of all the fertility that's either in the soil or that you add to the soil. Uh, we've been making these liquid extracts for turf originally, uh, and in the past 20 years, we've gone more and more into the agricultural areas. There's an awful lot more people eating than playing golf, it turns out. And as uh, just to cut to the chase, with an application of a couple of quarts of extract per acre, you can trigger a response in an acre of potatoes that gives you about 5% more potatoes. Hmm. We've been doing field trials for decades. Um, that represents a lot of food with no additional fertilizer or pesticides. If you get 5% more potatoes, if, if all of our fertilizer, if all of our extract, excuse me, had been put on potatoes, it, it wasn't, that we made this year, it would have represented probably 100,000 tons of extra potatoes. If you get 1,000 pounds more per acre on 200,000 acres, that's a lot of potatoes with no extra fertilizer or pesticides. So it's it's all of the, if I'm understanding correctly, it's all of that super healthy stuff that's in the rockweed that you're extracting and using as something like a fertilizer, but not exactly like the kind of fertilizer. Yeah, it, it, that right. it, does, it doesn't. It doesn't contain fertility, but it's like a catalyst for the fertilizers that are there. And that's what a biostimulant is. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes, and there's, there's many biostimulants in the past twenty years, especially in, and especially especially in light of well climate change, uh, growing conditions have become increasingly stressful for drought and well, too much water, too little water, too hot, too cold. Uh, these facilitators that are in the seaweed extract that increase the efficiency of the feed conversion help plants under all those different stress conditions. That's that's where it gets really important when you when you have a crop that you can save by uh, having applied seaweed tech gets to be important. So interesting. Um, and can you also explain, I know that there's been some work done that um, I'm hoping you can help us understand a little bit, which is how the relationship between seaweed and, um, and helping mitigate ocean acidification? Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting study uh, going on. It's going on around the world. I've, I've read about it all the way from Seattle to East Booth Bay. Uh, when seaweed grows, it pulls carbon dioxide out of the water. That's one of the things that's what photosynthesis does. Is you're, you're making plant material out of nitrogen and CO2. So as it grows, it's sequestering or capturing CO2, which effectively slows the rate of acidification. CO2 is what causes ocean acidification. So you can actually, in, in a, what they refer to in Bigelow Labs with a halo effect, 
if you grow and harvest seaweed, you're actually removing CO2 and raising the pH of the water slightly. And it's right on the threshold in some areas where the pH is crept down enough so that shell formation, the, the, the calcium conversion, when calcium in the water becomes a shell, whether it's an oyster or a clam, uh, there's this chemistry that requires a certain pH or won't work. So anytime you can push the pH back up a little bit, it makes shell formation more possible. We're pretty close to a threshold where it's going to really matter. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that harvesting seaweed is going to stop ocean acidification, but it is very interesting that it at least pushes back a little bit. And but is it, 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 it only works if you remove the seaweed from the, from the system. You have to take the seaweed out of the water after it grows. Otherwise, it just returns to be CO2 in the water. Interesting. Um, and so, uh, so, so your company um, harvests rockweed and then manufactures it into the different products yeah, that you mentioned. Yeah, right. We, yeah, we actually buy seaweed. Uh, it doesn't take nearly as much seaweed to, uh, to make these liquid extracts as it does to dehydrate it. Um, so we, we have uh, people that go out with boats and knives, and they hand harvest it just within probably 15 miles of Walterboro. We can get all we need. Uh, and again, if you harvest it properly, it just grows back better. How long have you guys been in operation? Um, Ocean Organics has been around for about 30 years. I started working in seaweed extractions and doing potato tests, frankly, uh, in 1978. I moved up here from Connecticut to, so I could live up here and have loved it ever since. But, yeah, uh, 40-something years, I guess. And um, what, are you, what are some changes that you're seeing on the coast in your time that you've been here? Um, well, it's interesting. The... Um, is, of course, an awful lot of people have moved here because it's such a nice place to live. Um, and along the coast, uh, there's a lot of people who who have moved to bought shore property because they like the coast of Maine. But in some cases, they seem to not like what makes the coast of Maine viable. So there's a little bit of a tension between the people who buy shore property and those of us who make our living from this natural resource. The, uh, that court case that uh, said that seaweed belonged to a landowner was a, a very strange outcome. Um, you probably don't want to get me going if they're only an hour, but um, the court ruling was made in spite of existing main law, and it's just very strange how that came down. Um, can you give us uh, – we, we briefly touched on the court case. Can you give us a quick overview on what the, what the ruling was? Well, the, rule, the ruling, um, the, the original court case uh, was who owns the seaweed, and the way the court was originally, the way the case was originally presented in what they refer to as the lower court, uh, they didn't put any emphasis on the fact that there is already main law that says that the public owns the, the seaweed, that the state manages the, that resource for the benefit of the public. They didn't bother to really enforce or, or expand that argument because I think they assumed that the court would look at the law before it ruled. But because they didn't introduce that the importance of the existing law in the lower court case, then the main Supreme Court couldn't couldn't really go to it. So instead it went to a misunderstanding about the biology of the plants and they compared it to trees instead of marine organisms. So it, it's kind of like somebody found a dead body in the trunk, but because they didn't have the search warrant, they couldn't do anything about it. The law was already there suggesting 
that uh, not suggesting, stating that marine organisms are the are a public resource, and there can't be anything more clear about seaweed than it's a marine organism. Um, yeah, thanks for that explanation, um, and and thanks for joining us on the call. Um, I think we're going to let you go and open up our lines to. Uh, if folks want to call in and ask our guests some questions, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about the court case. Um, but thanks so much, George Seaver from Ocean Organics. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. And our topic today is rockweed. Um, and we were just chatting with George Seaver, who is vice president of Ocean Organics. Um, he just joined us for 10 minutes on the line. But here in the studio, we have Hannah Middlestadt, who's a graduate student in ecology and environmental science at University of Maine. We have Greg Toby, general manager of Source Micronutrients. Bonnie Toby, who's the office manager of, I mean, who's the operations manager of Source Micronutrients, and Jacqueline Robidoux, who's a Marine Extension Associate from with Maine Sea Grant. Um, so if you are listening to the show and have a comment or a question about rockweed harvesting, if you have a question about the industry or about the science and biology of rockweed, please do feel free to call us. Um, our studio guests would be happy to answer questions. We're at 207-469-0500. That's 207-469-0500. And it looks like we have a caller, David from Brooklyn. Welcome to the show. Thanks for the show. It's really interesting. I, I have Thank two you. questions. One is, uh, uh, can you inform me at all about uh, what degree of... Um, of saturation uh, throughout the harvesting seaweed harvesting community is this what seems to be an important consideration of how much uh, rock weed you leave standing above the hold pass? How how clearly is this understood by the the, the general harvesting community out there? And uh, is it can that be made any more clear? than it is, uh, or is it necessary to make it more clear? Uh, That's a great question. The other question is, what about the seaweed I gather on the beach to take to my garden? Am I infringing on someone's property rights in doing that? Those are both great questions. Thank you so much for calling. And um, I'm hearing, I'm seeing all of our guests uh, ready to chime in on your questions. So really relevant. So let's start with the first question. Um, and um, the question was about what are some of the regulations um, and how, what's the minimum that can be taken versus left behind? Um, and Bonnie, do you want to share a little bit about sure. that front? Yeah, because uh, part of what we do, of course, is to help license our harvesters. So that's one of the first regulations is we must be licensed through the Department of Marine Resources. We do have regulations. It's ironic that a lot of the regulations are industry up because the Department of Marine Resources uh, basically asked some of these companies that have been doing this harvesting for so long sustainably how it is that they do sustain that. So one of the important things is that we do have a minimum of 16 inches um, Certainly, I can only speak for the company that I work for, but I do know that we actually have internal audits. And so we're out there with the uh, 
the truth pipe, as we call it, and it actually is a pipe that is marked with inches like a yardstick. And if I'm not doing it, Susan Demisey comes up and she does it herself. And we make sure that where we have harvested, we have left that good minimum height. It's generally much higher than that. Um, I think the last time we checked, we did like a 24 inch cutting height. So we're that part, we really uh, want to make sure that we leave it. We want to make sure we can come back in a few years and harvest again. So very important that the people who rely on harvesting as a living are going to really want to take care of this resource. The other thing to answer your other question on the uh, storm cast is what we would call that, the seaweed that has detached itself and drifted into the beaches. And that um, does belong as as far as we know to if it's on the beaches and has come up into somebody's beach then that would be the upland owner's property if it's just cast and floating then you know if, i think you can can gather some of that obviously you can't gather i think it's more than 50 pounds of anything without being licensed but uh, hopefully that helps to answer a little bit of the questions great <clears throat> thank you um and i wanted to follow up a little bit on the question about um the, the regulations um, and wanted to turn to Jacqueline because I know that you have recently been appointed to uh, uh, the Maine Seaweed Fishery Advisory Council. Is that the correct name? Yep, that's it. At the Department of, for the Department of Marine Resources. Can you tell us a little bit about what this new body is from, a, you know, what it's trying to do in terms of management and advising yeah, so the Seaweed Fisheries Advisory Council um, is through the Department of Marine Resources, like Natalie mentioned. Uh, I think it's it's really a long time coming for the seaweed industry. Uh, industry members have been trying to get this kind of advisory council within the Department of Marine Resources for a long time. So the function of the advisory council, uh, we have a pretty diverse group, which includes uh, scientists, uh, wild harvesters, uh, Department of Marine Resources staff, uh, in addition to some aquaculture folks, so folks who are farming seaweed, um, and myself. And so the group is really focused on making recommendations to the Department of Marine Resources, uh, whether that be about management or about scientific research that needs to be done. So kind of just advising um, DMR on what the seaweed industry needs and um, priorities should be. So, And it's, it's a new advisory board, right? Yeah, we had our first meeting in July. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, but industry uh, management or management of the industry by the Department of Marine Resources has been going on for a while, right? And so can you guys share from an industry perspective what would have been what's been sort of the management framework within which you work? To speak on that, um, again, um, the Seaweed Council, which was established in 1993, 93. Um, was uh, DMR, Department of Marine Resources, um, and had a tremendous amount of input on regulations. Um, so there has always been sort of a, a relationship there uh, between the uh, companies and DMR to help actually make some of this uh, uh, regulation and stuff stronger. Um, a few years ago, and I don't remember exactly when the date started, but there was something called the FMP, which was the Fisheries Management Plan. Um, that was a very comprehensive study uh, to include a lot of the research that the, we've been talking about today and other uh, parts and pieces. Uh, it was a, a, a pretty big deal. Um, that unfortunately got put on hold when the first Ross case um, uh, came out. 
um, simply because and the, and the Ross case is the court ruling the that court was ruling just settled that George a few had just ago. You know, had had, had uh, spoken about. Um, uh, they put it on hold. A, a portion of the FMP was going to be sectors um, and allocating sectors for harvest. Um, because that because of being a sector and, and an allocation that one would be harvesting in, they held off because they didn't know what the lawsuit was going to bring. At this point, we don't actually know where that's going to end up. There needs to be parts of that implemented for protection of the resource. Um, but again, the lawsuit sort of gave that a little bit of a, uh, just threw it off a little bit. So we don't know where that's going. But stepping back, there has been a very strong relationship between our company's industry and the DMR. And you guys, as industry members, you need a license. And you have to report your harvest? Yes, that's another part of what we do. Thank you. Uh, landings reports or catch reports, depending on how you report them. Uh, there, it, It's easy. Um, it's online reporting. It is required uh, now. It has been required, I think, well, for quite a while. Definitely since 2008, I know reporting has really stepped up in a lot of other companies as well. Um, so we do monthly landing reports on the harvesters, exactly how many pounds were taken, exactly from where. Another improvement that um, the fisheries management plan um, and the um, Maine Seaweed Council have actually been um, instrumental in is as making sure that um, it, that we're reporting. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to jump in and specify um, folks are hearing about the Maine Seaweed Council and yes. the Maine Seaweed Fisheries Advisory Council. They sound like the same body, but they're actually two bodies. The Maine Seaweed Council is an industry association, right? Yes. And the Advisory Council is the diverse body, including industry and scientists and others who serve in an advisory capacity for the Department of Marine Resources. Just to speak uh, quickly on the uh, Seaweed Council, um, the Seaweed Council is what I'd referred to earlier starting in 1993, and that was comprised of largely industry members as well as a pretty strong science um, uh, showing uh, and other vested interests. Um, uh, almost all walks of life, if you will, uh, are welcome and have been part of the uh, Seaweed Council. Um, they have public meetings. Um, if you want to know anything about seaweed, any questions, then that's the place to go and find a variety and a barrage of information. Mm -hmm. Very helpful website for me to get prepared for this show at, uh, what is it, seaweed.org? Seaweedcouncil.org. Seaweed Thank you. Um, and uh, we're talking a little bit more specifically today about rockweed, but Maybe Jacqueline or Hannah, can one of you guys help put rockweed in context with the rest of the seaweed on the coast, both biologically, but maybe also from an industry perspective? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, we interchange words like seaweed and algae and rockweed and kelp even sometimes, and they get kind of swirled around um, and do kind of at times seem interchangeable. But the distinction here 
um, is that algae refers to uh, its own class of organisms. And so underneath algae, you can think of macroalgae, and that's what we commonly refer to as seaweeds. Um, so things like the kelps and the rockweed are macroalgae. And there's also microalgae, which is uh, those single-celled organisms that are an essential part of the marine ecosystem. But um, for when we talk about rockweed, that's microalgae, I mean, <laughs> macroalgae or seaweed. Um, and then just to distinguish it again, there's different classes of macroalgae. So there's uh, green, red, and brown seaweeds. Uh, you can see that when you go on the beach, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, sometimes you'll see that green seaweed, sometimes it might be more red. So um, the rockweeds are actually the part of the brown algae, which are an entirely separate class. Um, in general, I know we talked a little bit about that seaweed is not a plant. Um, so seaweed is its own uh, entity in that, um, you know, it is um, pretty incredible. Its spores can swim on its own. And so um, they kind of are effectively migrating around the intertidal zone and their most juvenile phases. Um, and so it's closer to humans than plants, actually, on the oh. evolutionary scale. So, and we have, you know, DNA analysis is kind of a way of revealing these crazy truths about biology, and this would definitely be one of them. That's so interesting. Huh. Um, I think that David has called us back with another great question. David, welcome back. Hi. So, sorry uh, for the repeat call. but No I worries. One more questions. One, one is... Uh, uh, about the, I, I heard just a brief mention that perhaps when I was uh, uh, putting my seaweed in a barrel with water, it might be a good idea to put some wood ash in there with it. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, also, I'm interested in the, uh, the possible divergent opinions that there might be from the advisory council and the industrial uh, council about the length of uh, seaweed, which needs to remain uh, attached to the holdfast. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, like uh, uh, constitutionally uh, biased against taking my information from industry-dominated uh, information organizations, and you can perhaps understand why that would be. Uh, so I wanted a little more clarification on that, too. And also, it, did I hear that uh, if I collect more than 50 pounds of seaweed on the beach, which I frequently do. I need a license in order to do that. Yes, you do. I don't believe it. And I, I need to know much more about how I can get such a license because I know there's me and lots and lots of folks who are going to be needing to get licenses. So maybe on that front, what we can do is um, uh, we can gather a little bit more information and, and try to put it on the web. Um, and, and we'll keep you posted on that one. Um, I wish you could put it on the air. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know that we have the the immediate information other than, um, what do you? I would definitely just check with the Department of Marine Resources. I think that's, that's probably idea. the best because they would have the most updated policies. And now, I'm talking that... about what I pick up on the beach, not what I gather from a boat. If you are um, collecting live organisms, anything more than 50 pounds, you require a license. If well, you're collecting... Well, once it's detached from the uh, hold test? Once, once it's detached and becomes storm cast, um, as long as the property owner that it washes upon grants you permission, I believe you can take as much as you want, but please don't quote me on that. You really mm -hmm. should do the research. 
Great. Thank you for that clarification. Um, and great questions again, David. Thanks. We will um, we'll, we'll tackle them. I think that the seaweed and the wood ash was George's, when George was, uh, George Seavey from Ocean Organics uh, joined us on the phone for 10 minutes. He mentioned that as a historical use of seaweed. I'm looking around to see if anybody has more information. And That would definitely be a George question. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and I'm sure that, uh, David, if you called him, he would be more than happy to talk to you about that. That's great. Good recommendation. Thanks. Um, and then um, the other question that David had was um, sort of the if there are various opinions about the leaving a minimum of 16 inches behind uh, on the plant, or not the plant, on the marine organism. Um, and I'm going to look to our scientists to share a little bit about maybe is there any research that is um, that's tackling some of this? Yeah, I think that um, there has been a lot of research in the past looking at how quickly the rockweed grows back at that 16-inch height. And um, I can't quote the numbers mm -hmm. <laughs> currently, but um, I do know that that is um, not, like, based in science that um, that is a height which will allow the rockweed to regrow. And it is interesting that this is the only marine industry that doesn't take the whole organism. So um, only part of the seaweed, part of the organism is taken and it's able to grow back um, within, I think it depends where, like on the conditions that it's in, but within one to four years, is that mm -hmm. um, somewhere in that range it will regain its biomass. Um, and in terms of the impact of that on um, the organisms that live in the rockweed, um, there have been some short-term effects that have been seen, but generally that 16-inch cutting height um, allows for uh, the uh, communities that are living in the rockweed, the different organisms, to recover um, within a year generally. Is, but there, there are uh, many studies on that as well. So. And is that in part what the research that you're involved in is, is looking at? Are you looking at the, the height or overall... You're looking at, in part, the impact of harvesting on the communities, right? Yes, yes. And um, so par for part of our research, we are um, measuring um, the height of just a random sample of the rockweed at our study site. So we can see how that varies between sites that have been harvested and sites that have not been harvested. And what's interesting is that harvesting, I think people can sometimes picture it as just you're going in and you're mowing an entire lawn and everything's going to be, you know, right at that 16 inch height after harvesting. But really it's very patchy. Like you could have one patch that um, maybe got harvested to 16 inches and then a couple feet over there is a two meter tall frond. So, um, uh, so that height can vary a lot just because the boats are floating around. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of topography on that, um, uh, sea floor surface. Um, so there might be some uh, rockweed individuals that are in crevices and actually stay pretty tall after harvesting as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's very different than um, sort of the mowing effect that you're talking about. And I, and I want to talk a little bit more about harvesting in a second, but for folks who are just tuning in, I want to let you know that you're listening to Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. And we're talking about rockweed today with our four guests in the studio. We have Hannah Middlestadt, that's who you were just hearing, who's at the University of Maine in the Department of Ecology and Environmental Science. 
We have Greg Toby from Source Micronutrients and his sister Bonnie Toby from Source Micronutrients. And we have Jacqueline Robidoux, who's um, with the Maine Sea Grant Program doing seaweed-related work. Um, and we heard from George Seavey brief, briefly from Ocean Organics a little bit earlier, and he talked, um, sort of bring it back to harvesting, he talked a little bit about hand harvesting, um, which is how his harvesters will harvest. And um, I believe that you guys at Source your harvesters do it a little bit differently. Could you share, um, kind of paint a picture for our listeners how harvesting works? So yeah, um, back when Source was started, uh, we did primarily, actually predominantly, hand harvesting. Um, When you have a skilled harvester using a sharp blade, caring for the resource, knowing what they're doing, um, it's, it's fine. The problem that we re- we're running into is that you can't always trust um, the human hand to do the right thing. So about 10 years ago, um, Susan Demise's, um uh, husband had designed, or she asked him to design. And he, she is the, f- the founder of your company, Source. Yes, yeah, Susan is the, the owner-founder of Source. Um, she wanted him to design something that worked better. Um, and and quite contrary to popular belief, a mechanical harvester at this point was not designed for increased productivity at all. It was designed to reduce or eliminate bycatch and to make a uniform uh, material that was uh, of better quality that didn't include pulling holdfasts off the rock um, and something that you could put an individual with some competence, but not necessarily a skilled harvester right off the bat. Training would come into that. Um, so the mechanical harvester's birth was, was based on those uh, points. So what we have today is a machine that, I don't care how long you put it in one place or what the RPM is or who's on the machine, you can only harvest the point of which it's just not going to harvest anymore. And I liken it to a lawnmower. Um, you can send your you know, teenage kid out to uh, mow the backyard and he gets talking on whatever, Facebook or whatever, and leaves the lawnmower running for three hours straight in the same spot. If you move the lawnmower, guess what? It's, the lawn is still there, nothing happened to it. Mechanical harvesting does the exact same thing. There's guards and protection, there's large uh, uh, funnels on the front of our machines that just simply cannot allow anything more than 16 inches and speaking of topography on the bottom of the ocean floor uh, as we all know that uh, you know you've got rocks and jetties and crevices and high spots and low spots so when we get done harvesting an area uh, largely you won't be able to tell because of that topography because we're going to leave predominantly more than 16 inches but certainly a minimum of um, you're going to end up with uh, with something that's very difficult to tell. One more point about mechanical harvesting and the reason why we uh, went that direction is uh, bycatch. Um, while harvesting hand raking, if you can imagine a 10-foot rake with sharpened tines, you would throw that out, you'd pull down, and you'd yank back. And if it's a nice sharp rake and you're careful, you can pull back just rockweed. But if you're not careful and it's dull, you're going to end up pulling the holdfast uh, from, you know, and, and, and completely removing the entire organism, which you don't want to do. Uh, also, um, that rake is almost like a cast net, which where you throw the rake out, pull it back, you're going to end up with critters uh, in that. 
uh, a mechanical harvester pretty much eliminates that. Um, because of the turbulence underwater, it'll make noise, it scares the fish away, gives them plenty of time for a getaway plan, uh, and as well as um, you're not pulling the hold fast off, you're actually cutting the top of the rockweed. So there's a tremendous amount of benefits to mechanical harvesting, and it's certainly by no means designed to increase productivity. And you, and you used the word bycatch. Can you define that? Bycatch would include most things that you don't want, which could be rocks, uh, it could be snails, crabs, uh, any other little critters that would live uh, in, inside and seek protection from the rockweed. You don't want to disturb those for very long, and you certainly don't want to catch them. They need to be there as a vital you know, ecosystem. Uh, so when we go in and, and those little critters hear that noise, they're gone. You know, if you stick your finger in a fish bowl, guess what? The fish you know, go to the other side. But then a couple seconds later, they'll come back. Hey, what was that? Um, so that's pretty much what we were uh, working with. Great, thank you. And I can just elaborate on that a little bit because we have so many uh, archived records at the office and uh, part of what we call our Friday evening cleanup is a spreadsheet that has, you know, rocks, mussels, um, crabs, any periwinkle, anything. Um, and the um, bycatch is weighed at the end of each shift and documented in those categories, believe it or not. And so I can go back to before the mechanical harvesters were built and see, you know, pounds in each of those categories, you know, not, not crazy, but certainly more than you'd want to see. And since those mechanical harvesters, those were like 2007, 2008, when they kind of first were perfected and came on the scene as at least prototypes. And the bycatch, I can say, is virtually eliminated. We're talking about um, throwing, we have a bin that's underneath our sorting table. And there's just, I mean, you, it's not, doesn't even cover the bottom of that bin. It's just so... Um, minor compared to what it used to be. So our records are all all transparent and anybody that ever wants to kind of see those sorts of things and the improvement that was made over that design, we're, we're more than happy to, you know, we're kind of proud of that. That's great. Um, that's such an interesting evolution to, to why and how the mechanical harvester came on board. Um, from, a, from a science perspective and working with... Um, within the rockweed zone. Um, how, so with the, with the court case, having um, designated rockweed as belonging to the upland landowner, um, how does that impact the research in the intertidal zone? And, and does it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely interesting when you're in, or during, when, you know, a year into a two-year study and a court case is ruled that changes who owns the organism that you're studying. It's definitely an interesting situation to be in. Um, but luckily, we um, have, for the most part, had really great interactions with the landowners um, at our study sites, and um, they have allowed the study to continue. And if anything, it's allowed us to further engage um, with these landowners and um, uh, kind of, you know, get their uh, thoughts and investment in, in this research. So um, overall, while it presented some challenges, um, I think that it just means that our results will have a wider audience and, um, and just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really interesting. I mean, a lot of people really care about this system and want to see this research happening. Um, so for the most part, we've been pretty well supported by landowners, which is great. That's great. That's great. Um, and has it 
posed any challenges from an industry perspective? Yes, actually it has. Um, we've been, uh, I think it's important to note, which would put this statement into context, the very small geographic area that we work in. And if you remove the ability to work even 10 or 15 percent of that geographic area due to a landowner who who wouldn't want us to harvest, it makes a tremendous impact upon how we can function and achieve the amount of material that we would uh, need throughout a season. Um, just a case in point, the area that we work, if you, it's one season is within visual range, um, meaning that you can go to the shore, you can look to your left, and that whole entire area is one season's worth. So it doesn't take a whole lot of um, uh, people to say, well, no, we don't really want you harvesting there. Definitely makes a tremendous impact on us. And we just have a couple minutes left. Um, and I would love to hear from you guys sort of what your hopes are for the future of rockweed or your research or where, where you see it going. Who wants to start? Just quick. Jacqueline. Yeah, I'll jump in there. I'm really excited to see how, and kind of Hannah, um, alluded to this, how the interactions with the public and the community really start to develop um, as we learn more about the resource. You know, it's such a foundational species and um, it really plays that dual role of being that foundational species, but also having a large part in working waterfronts um, and main heritage as we know it. And so the, com the combination of those two and just really getting the word out about what seaweed is and having, um, you know, some science develop and industry working with that science, I think is a really great opportunity moving forward. So great. Thank you. How about you, Hannah? Yeah. And just to echo that, um, I mean, this has just been such an interesting ecosystem to learn about and a really awesome industry to learn about as well. So I think um, it's just a great um, area to do research in because it's so well supported by um, the industry and regulators, and then now bringing more landowners into the conversation as well really only strengthens, strengthens the buy-in for the research that we're able to do. So I'm excited to see what's down the road. Great. Thank you. I definitely um, think that we have a wonderful collaboration between science and industry, and I'm going to steal a little quote there from Greg sitting right next to me that really without science, you know, there wouldn't be any industry. And that's so true because it's science that has proven all of these wonderful benefits and the new uses of seaweed. So I, I definitely appreciate that synergy. I think my hopes for the future is that we can continue, provide some more science and also be able to restore the rights to the intertidal zone. Thank you to um, all of our guests today. We've come to the end of our coastal conversation. Always goes by so fast. Um, so thanks to Hannah Middlestadt, graduate student at UMaine, um, to Greg Toby and Bonnie Toby, who are both with Source Micronutrients, and to Jacqueline Robidoux, who is with Maine Sea Grant. Thanks uh, to our caller, who had great questions and helped tease out some really important questions. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Please join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed by Paul Anderson. Thanks so much to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.
Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Ray Carboni Sculpture and Woodworking with wood, bronze, 